All right, good afternoon, everyone. This is Mark Molina, CEO of Molina Leadership and Business Development Solutions. We are very grateful and thankful to host a candidate forum this evening for State Representative District 12 in Springfield, Oregon. We have with us the incumbent, John Lively, his opponent, Ruth Linos, as well as our panel, uh, Bonnie Mickelson and Jake Pelroy. The rules already have been provided to the candidates. They will open up with a five minute introductory statement. They will have three minutes to answer questions as myself, Jake and Vani rotate through. And then they will have seven minutes to, uh, to have a closing statement. So I want everyone to see the rules. So when you get to whether it's the five minute speech, the seven minute speech, or your three minutes, you'll see what, when you have one minute remaining, 30 seconds remaining, and T for time. I want to keep it very simple. Very good. And so even when you see T for time, if you're in the middle of a thought, please conclude your thought because we're not, we're not, we don't want to cut anyone off early. Okay. And so for those of you that are, are watching, welcome. We look forward to hearing from both the candidates this evening. And John, as the incumbent, uh, we will begin with your five-minute opening statement. Okay, thank you very much, Mark, and to all of you, thank you for uh, putting this on. Uh, it's uh, my honor to be part of this and to have been serving the city of Springfield uh, as a state representative since 2013. A little bit about my background. So I was born and raised in northeastern Oregon, a little town called Wallowa, <clears throat> and we had moved to Springfield. I was a junior in high school, so really my formative years, quote, was in a town of 800 people in Northeastern Oregon, and I still have pretty strong connections uh, and a love for that country. It's a beautiful part of our state. Once we moved to uh, Springfield, I graduated from Thurston High School, attended Lane Community College, spent four years in the Army during the Vietnam era, came back and graduated from the University of Oregon with a degree in political science and economics. Uh, <clears throat> it was shortly after I graduated uh, that I ran for uh, city council. In the, between graduation and running for city council, I got married, decided to start a family. Uh, fortunately, found a job. I worked for a company called LJ in those days. It's now JCI uh, International, but in those days it was called LJ. So I started in heavy manufacturing business. Uh, ran for and was elected to city council in 1976. Ran for and was elected mayor in 1980, and again in 1984. So that was kind of my local uh, elected office career, though after that point, uh, after I left local elected office, I spent an enormous amount of time volunteering in our community for all kinds of community causes, serving on uh, nonprofit boards, uh, working for nonprofit causes because I've always felt it was important to provide back to my community. However, during all that time, my professional career has always been in the private sector. So after working in heavy manufacturing, I was in retail for a while, ski sales. Then I went into economic development uh, and operated the Economic Development Corporation, Eugene Springfield Metro Partnership for quite a few years here in Lane County before it became the Lane County Partnership. I spent a little time in the semiconductor business. After that, I worked in call centers, support centers for software uh, so my career continues to evolve and change over that time. Uh, after that, worked in consulting uh, in land use planning, uh, architecture for several years, worked in the businesses of consulting for uh, public relations and that, 
and spent quite a bit of time working with ODOT in the public relations role, not for them directly, but as a contractor when they rebuilt the bridge, the I-5 bridge. Uh, in 2012, I had the chance to run for this office. Uh, frankly, it was not something that was on my agenda that I would ever, something I wanted to do, but didn't think I'd ever get the opportunity. There were so many other things that went on. I raised my kids in Springfield. My daughters got married. I had grandchildren. There were a lot of things going on other than politics. <laughs> In that 2012, got the opportunity and so agreed to run uh, for this office, was fortunate enough to be elected uh, and have continued to have the privilege to serve since taking office in 2013. Uh, I would say one of the highlights of my serving in, in the legislature has been the range of committees that I've been eligible to serve on. So you serve at the privilege of the speaker and she chooses which committee you serve on. Mm -hmm. and that's an honor. She asks what your preferences are, but you can't always meet those. Uh, and so since I've been there uh, in the legislature, I've changed committees, at least one or more committees every two years when the speaker has asked me to serve on some other committee. And I attribute that partly to my ability to get along with all sides and to listen to the arguments, but also to my experience and all the things I did in the private sector before I got there that provided me the opportunity. So healthcare, you can go through the list, transportation, the joint committees on student success, the joint committees on transportation, the joint committee on carbon, I enjoy the joint committee simply because you've got senators and representatives, all sides at the table. Uh, and so there, from my standpoint are greater conversations. Uh, but all of that's provided me a, a great opportunity to represent my community. And in doing that, I always try to balance the fact that Springfield has some unique characteristics that aren't necessarily the same as the rest of the state. And I need to balance those in relationship to what works throughout the state. Uh, both in the Valley and in the Eastern Oregon. And at the end of the day, I feel pretty comfortable that I've been successful at being able to do that uh, for my constituents. So thanks again for this opportunity. Okay, Ruth, your welcoming statement, five minutes. You're, are you muted? Okay, let me, let me restart the clock just a moment. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. Hi, I'm Ruth Linos, and I'm honored to be a part of this uh, forum because it's important to know how I can uh, represent Springfield, mainly because I don't have a political background. And so I want you to know where I'm coming from as a resident of Springfield who is very um, enmeshed in a lot of the experiences that make for a good leader. I was born in Montana. I was raised in the Midwest. I finished my schooling through um, high school in Southern California. I uh, married and had my two daughters in San Francisco area, but that was not the type of lifestyle uh, we wanted our, to raise our kids. So we moved to Eugene in the mid 80s and experienced the economic challenges of the state at that time, but we loved Oregon. And my family background is very much a part of Oregon. I have family all over Oregon who were born here or emigrated here. And so we would come to Oregon for family reunions over my childhood and there's still family here in Oregon. So as we've lived here in Lane County for over 35 years, I remarried and 
lived in Springfield. And part of my experience with just Lane County and these two urban areas is they're very diverse. There's a cultural difference between Eugene and Springfield. And what I learned as I lived and worked in Eugene is there is just so much dynamics to the um, existence of a college, several colleges, and there's also very robust being the center of a judicial, um, being the federal courthouse and so on. But I was part of a career that I kind of stumbled into. I was raising my kids and I was a stay-at-home parent until they got into school, finished my undergrad, but didn't really have a sense of career until I had some experience with retail and realized I, I needed something else. So I saw an ad for bus driving never thought I would have a career in transit. But that opened my eyes to the real underlying value of when you've got community public funded agencies that are there to be a resource to the community and they're uh, running well and you're a part of that, you, you influence the whole region. And so I started out as a bus driver. I went into the planning department. And in those experiences, I worked on regional projects. And uh, my favorite project was the U of O duck shuttles. And I did every type of LTD shuttle service for most of my planning career. And in that, I networked with every state police, uh, civic, and the U of O staff in order to have this energetic, multidisciplinary team who could operate moving a population the size of Springfield <laughs> on a game day. So I had experience there. I then had my career moved down to uh, a rural community of Cottage Grove as an executive director. I got highly involved in the community with uh, being on the Chamber of Commerce, Rotary. I also was involved with economic development committees and worked on several projects to improve attracting companies into the area. So I can see through transportation as well as civic involvement that there's leadership that needs to make a difference in order for us to move forward. And I bring that skill set. Thank you very much. Now for those that are viewing, uh, I'll be covering questions regarding the budget, governance issues, the role of the state representative. Jake will be covering questions regarding the response to the pandemic, the role of the state in response to the pandemic, wildfires, emergency response, resources of the state and emergency planning, working with local municipalities and the county in these areas. Bonnie will be covering business community issues, concerned around taxes and the role of the state seeking input from business leaders. And some of our questions may cross over because a lot of these areas uh, mm -hmm. have to be answered in 
questions uh, have are impacted by many areas at the state. So uh, right. if, if if they sound the same, um, don't panic. We're we're ready. So I'm going to begin with you, Ruth. So I'll ask. I'll go first. Okay. Now, for those that are viewing, my questions for Ruth are a little bit different than I have for John regarding the budget, uh, because John has firsthand knowledge being the incumbent, and I have a different kind of question around the budget for Ruth, because she may not have had access to all the meetings and the special sessions and things of that nature. Uh, so for you, Ruth, what is your understanding of the role of the state representative in managing the budget for the state? What are some of the larger budgets you have worked on? Uh, and how will they help you if you win this election? You have three minutes. So the role of the legislature representative is we're to help um, not only uh, plan, but we also create the budget for the biennial. And we've it's our job to um, prepare that and deliberate it and also make sure that it gets implemented in all the areas that the state's responsible for. So we're taking input from lobbyists, we're taking uh, input from our constituents in order to see the value of where our tax dollars are going. And my biggest budget that I work with is my actual organization, a private nonprofit. Uh, we work with federal and state funding and our budget can be half a million dollars. And I've also worked on, um, I'm involved with the Chamber of Commerce and we work with the budget because I'm on the board of directors for that. And I believe that budget is smaller than uh, my actual organizations. Now, which chamber board are we talking about? Oh, the Cottage Grove Chamber of Commerce. You still have about one minute and 45 seconds if you'd like to add. <laughs> and so I see my value is um, my being a director of a small nonprofit. Uh, I have 12 employees. I'm daily having to deal with decisions on revenue and also how to uh, take care of those fiscal responsibilities managing um, taxpayer dollars to make sure they're getting value out of the service um, these funds are being given to uh, provide to a community. I also have to report on those uh, outcomes. And so there's a circle of responsibility that I'm regularly working with in order to keep my organization going. And I also have to make those decisions when I'm on boards to make sure there's um, fiscal accountability as well as that organization is staying viable. Is that all you'd like to say? You got about 30 seconds left? <laughs> no, thank you. You're good. I'm gonna ask that to both of you if you finish early because I just wanna make sure. All right, John, my first question to you and next will be Vani and then Jake. Uh, John, what is our current state budget? What is the expected loss of revenue due to the pandemic? And what is the role of the legislature to manage and provide oversight of the budget? You have three minutes, sir. Thanks, thanks a lot, uh, Mark. So the current biennium budget, which is the 2019-2021 through 2019-2021 approved budget is about $86 billion, $86 billion. And I always try to emphasize in that because people hear a lot about the general fund and what ultimately the legislature has direct control over. 
So out of that $86 billion, the general fund and the lottery funds are $26 billion. So when you think about the decisions the legislature gets to make, make an influence, the most control we have over are those two funds, even though the lottery in many cases have been controlled by petitions from citizens who have dedicated those funds to specific causes. So out of the 85 billion, we have direct control. The general fund is the money we have the discretion over uh, moving from different areas to different areas. Another large portion of the budget is federal funds. And so one of the important decisions that we make when we're doing the budget is where we invest our state funds and can leverage federal funds. And one of the key areas has to do with healthcare. And so the Medicaid program, uh, we put in 10% of the money and the federal government puts in 90% of the money. So when you think about us making budget decisions, if we were to cut the state's portion of what we put into Medicaid, the federal portion decline would be substantial because the match is much greater than that. And so that's just one example Many, much of the funds in human services were the budget that for the state for human services is about $12 billion, but more than half of those funds, in some cases, six to one match are federal funds. So many of the decisions that we make at the state level on the budget has to do with both the, the importance of the programs, but where we leverage the state funds to enable to pay for those programs. So the other part of it is from the standpoint of the general funds, the biggest proportion of those funds go to first education, the state school budget for K through 12 education is $9 billion. So remember I said that those funds are $26 billion, the general fund revenue. So $9 billion there. And then the other two areas that they go to are the human services and corrections and prisons is where the majority of the funds go. So that's, that's the range of the, the funds that we deal with in the state of Oregon, the size of our budget. And the responsibility of the legislature is to approve the budget and then hold uh, the areas within the de departments and that accountable for those specific budgets. Uh, and so that's generally done through what's called the Joint Ways and Means Committee, and I don't serve on those committees, uh, but they're the committees that represent all of us that put together the budget and approve the expenditures and make the recommendations back. And they do have to be approved by the legislature, but they take a simple majority vote in both the Senate and the House to approve the budgets. So that's kind of the process and the amount of the budget. Very good, thank you. So before Avani, if just so you know, Ruth, I've I've muted you on my end. So if you start, if, if Bonnie asks you first, you'll have to unmute yourself. I'm going to mute myself. Bonnie, you're you're up. Thank you, Mark. This question is for both of you. So same question for both of you. And I think I'll start with Representative Lively first on this one. So on a scale, this has to do with business climate. So on a scale of one to ten. 10 being most excellent, how are we doing as a state overall in creating a healthy business and economic development climate, one that supports our efforts locally to attract talent, business, and, uh, investment, family wage jobs, and quality of place improvements? So where are we succeeding and where are we underperforming? Sure. On a scale of 1 to 10. 1 to 10. Well, I, I assume you'd like me to say 10, but I can't because that's not where we're at as a state. Uh, but I believe we're six or seven from a standpoint of state, especially when I look at what other states have or haven't done. Uh, and so there's two or three key areas I think the state has uh, helped to excel. And one of those has to do with infrastructure. And so whether the infrastructure is roads, sewers, etc., the state has put a lot of money into along with matching with local jurisdictions to provide that infrastructure. And so highways and bridges and things are very important for commerce. 
Uh, we passed in 2017 the, the transportation package, rebuilding bridges and straight. And so that's very helpful for businesses both to survive and to uh, keep going. Uh, we also have through the enterprise zone and several economic development programs and many funds from the lottery, because that's what the lottery, the majority of the lottery is dedicated to is business development. So through Business Oregon, there's funds permitted to support businesses. Uh, one of the things we need to look at is where those funds are at in relationship where businesses are today versus when we started many of them. We don't think they're well positioned and they're not working like they are. You know, I would say our biggest weakness is regulation and, and what we regulate or don't, and mostly we regulate everything, but how much we regulate that and how often we check and see if it's doing what we expect from a standpoint of public safety. Is it accomplishing our means and at what cost does it accomplish our means and is another way to do it. And I can tell you on the economic community, we hear that a lot about the cost of regulation and it does. Uh, many people don't understand that regulation from a standpoint of us putting the law in place, we can put the law in place, but it costs businesses to comply and or citizens to pay for that compliance. And I would say from a standpoint of the state, that's where we had the most work we could do uh, to be more supportive of businesses, uh, to help them succeed. And frankly, we're going to get a new opportunity to do that given the impacts of COVID and the, the, that so many businesses are going to have to recover from this, what has happened here. And the role the state plays in that's going to be very important to help them recover. So <clears throat> the seven, I think is where we're at. I think there's examples across the state where some communities have done better. Some communities are banded together and on their own have done. Uh, I feel fortunate we live in Springfield because I think in particular Springfield's done a good job and historically has worked uh, better with the business communities and that to try to alter and change things to comply with it. Uh, but that's not the case in all uh, particular communities in the state. So seven it is. So I would paint a little more optimistic uh, rating of an eight, mainly because, as I said before, my experience of living in Eugene and now in Springfield for the last uh, 22 years, I've actually seen a proactive and a very pro-business mindset out of the leadership of Springfield that has taken every opportunity that the state has provided to um, take advantage of programs and also and partnering with uh, state agencies to get the most out of whatever funding's available, communicating with the, the businesses through the chamber and also through the city council and the various committees to really be proactive in supporting what development can uh, be helped the negative side is I agree with uh, Representative Lively in that regulations have grown. And when our budget as a state has grown 70% um, in 10 years, I mean, it has just ballooned that the cost of supporting is on the backs of businesses. And there needs to be a look at how we develop our budget so that there's a better balance between programs that help support our citizens and uh, the resources that are needed to provide a quality of life and who's paying for it. And small businesses are so key 
to our success, but they're the ones who are suffering the most right now with COVID. And there's the regulations that have been implemented over the last, especially this session and the last um, legislative sessions that have added taxes and have also increased regulations and put more limitations on what can be used with our resources that we're kind of setting up more resistance to change and that really is what I'm seeing keeps us at an eight. We need to remove so we can move forward and get more towards nine and ultimately 10 because this area has so much to offer in its own businesses and resources and work um, quality of workers that we've got to tap into that and we can't chase away businesses with uh, continued regulations. Thank you. I'll reset. Jake? Yeah, thank you. Um, so mine's going to be based around emergency. So a general question I have for both of you is as a state legislator, how would you look to support a community in need during and after an emergency? What are some of the things you'd be looking for? And I would start with uh, uh, Ruth on that one. Well, my experience with emergency planning uh, because of my transportation background is you have to have a a group of resource managers at the state level who have a network that you can quickly make decisions. There's already been some um, game plan exercises so that it's a simple matter of a decision being made and then there's already a way to implement it. My, I would support any improvement of that I would also say that as we end this fire season, that there needs to be a, a debrief that we get together with those local as well as state level operators and find out what worked, what didn't work, what we could do better to improve. We've got some great systems in place, the Raptor uh, is a one-stop shop for information. That's a great resource. But I noticed when I was visiting the evacuation center at Silky Field this week, the challenge was when was county going to get involved and when was there going to be leadership in place so that the volunteers who came in droves and they had a heart and they were definitely very interested in helping with uh, evacuees. They were on their own and, <laughs> and were struggling in order to make those higher level decisions. And as a person who knows you've got to have a chain of command quite often in those situations, it seemed unfair to see that happen. And so that tells me there's something got missed and there was maybe some resources that got sent to California that created this gap. We didn't plan on it, but it happened. So what can we do in the future to uh, minimize that 
for this type of, of emergency or any type of emergency like a pandemic. So uh, a couple, three things I would say first. I think first and foremost, the, state, the state's responsible for supporting local communities, counties and so on in response because the response is going to come locally you know, if it's a statewide emergency, in many cases, the people closest to where the emergency is are the people in the local area. And so we got to make sure that the state's in position. And the state can do that financially by supporting services. So I'll, I'll offer an example of the conflict centers, the 911 centers. The state supports those, helps with those operations so that there's a place people can call one number and people can be dispatched. So that's one example of what the state does. I serve on the the Interoperability Committee, which is a committee working across all jurisdictions in Oregon to make sure we have a communication network. So when there is an emergency, many cases what has happened in the past and is still happening unfortunately is agency can't talk to each other or certainly agencies across borders of counties and can't. And so we're going through this process of interoperability to where there'll be one network. So everybody's connected together and the state has a role in that both to help finance it, to oversee the, the rollout of it, but to track federal funding because there is federal funding that's available and then to distribute that federal funding out through the communities. And one of the examples of what we know in working on that committee is <clears throat> we've become very dependent upon cell phones and cell communication and that works. But I'll use the case what we know will happen in the case of the earthquake is if those shell, cell towers shake just a little bit and change direction, we'll lose communication. And that's probably what will happen between the coast and the valley anyway that they will, or secondly, they will lose their power. And so putting power networks out there for backup power and things are an example again of the things the state along with the counties and the cities need to do. There's also obviously from the state's <clears throat> perspective, we have the highway department. So many things that our departments in the state do directly reflect on how we support uh, for emergencies. Uh, ODOT's important, and as we'll see in the fires and what's happened to the state highways in that, repairing the highways, putting them back, helping direct traffic during those particular concerns. I mean, it's, it's going to take a major investment by the state to reopen some of those state highways after that emergency. Obviously, the National Guard is part of the state, and we know that we're learning more about what the National Guard can or cannot do. And what this, this emergency has told us is there's some great things they can do. We haven't trained them, though, in many cases, for some of the things we'd like them to do. So it's pointed out again from the state standpoint, something we can do is help to train the National Guard to be ready for some of these things. But overall, it's important for the state to support the efforts locally, whether it be financially or with human capital, because the first response is going to be at the local level, and that's going to be the most direct response to help people. Very good. Thank you. I'll reset. <clears throat> all right, my next question, John, I'll start with you. And you may not have all this information right off uh, the uh, right offhand. Do you have any idea what's been the estimated cost to the state to manage the response to the local fires? Is there money in reserves to absorb this cost without great risk to our budget limitations? So I don't have uh, <clears throat> figured this. I've read bits and pieces of figures coming from different regions of what that might be. Uh, and it's going to be, I mean, it could, it could reach as much as $100 million from the standpoint of the cost. And when I say that, so in many cases, the state's putting money in that we may get reimbursed from the FEMA or other places once all this is sorted out, but what the state can't do uh, in the near term through the Forest Service and, and managing the system is, is not spend the money that we have to spend in order to make sure 
that the response is active and there's enough support out there. And that's something the governor has pledged to do. Uh, there are reserves at the state level. Uh, obviously, the Department of Forestry had, has a budget that's committed to fighting fires. We knew uh, after the budget was passed, we knew that was not adequate if we had what we called major forest fire concerns. And so uh, there was money put in reserves in order to help save that, but everybody knows in the meantime, we had COVID and a downturn in our revenues. And so when we rebalanced the budget, much of those reserves and things were used that were not there. Uh, the government, governor recently took action to veto parts of the budget to create more money, both to replace the money in the Department of Forestry to make sure the money is there to support their efforts and to build some more cushion within the state budget. But here's what I can tell you. At the end of the day, we have reserves. So we have a rainy day fund, uh, which would be the primary fund we would tap, which is almost a billion dollars. And while it takes two thirds of the legislature to vote it, I would believe on all sides of the aisle, we'd be supporting doing that. So we have the reserves, even with the down the decrease in revenue from that, we have the re adequate reserves to shore up and make sure that uh, the people in the field have the support they need. That doesn't, I mean, we're gonna have to address this going forward in a much more robust bus way than we have in the past, even with the revenue challenges. But I'm very comfortable in the near term that we can absorb the costs, support the people, the firefighters and the people in the field, the recovery efforts after that from a standpoint of restoring the roads and the streams and things. Uh, we have the ability to do that with the reserves to do it, but that just means in the next biennium budget, we'll have to address how we sustain, because those efforts are going to be sustained into the next year or so for that recovery. You got about 45 seconds. What can we expect from getting, receiving FEMA funds? What can we start? I didn't hear you. What can we expect to receive FEMA funds? Uh, I couldn't. I couldn't answer. <laughs> I can't answer that. I don't know. That's a process I'm not very familiar with. The requests are in, and they're at this point doing it, but I couldn't tell you, Mark. Very good. Thank you, sir. I'll reset. Okay, uh, Ruth. A second question for you. <clears throat> a little bit different. What is your experience in dealing with budgetary demands and constraints when facing an emergency in any of the roles that you have filled? And if you win this election, how would those experiences help you as a state representative serve the state and serve the people? I have a very good example. In fact, it happened last year. Uh, we experienced as an agency a shortfall. It was unexpected. It was definitely a uh, severe. And so that experience took us from having this cushion and this um, game plan for a fiscal year. We had to totally take um, a reset and looking at our budget. And it also called for a constant monitoring of cash flow as well as expenditures. And that exercise really put me in touch with all the funding cycles, all of the, the, the costs that it takes to operate an organization because you wanna have no interruption of service. And I see that experience as um, a, good, ex a good reminder that you've got to pay attention. And I take that experience in looking at a legislative role, just as Representative Livery said, is there's accountability that is expected as a legislature 
is uh, conducting its sessions and oversight of state agencies that need to happen on a regular basis because I think the lack of doing that has ballooned some budgets and has not really held in accountability the performance of those agencies and and we just have to point to the employment department as kind of the poster child of that dynamic unfortunate as it is it is a result of not planning and troubleshooting an issue in the past so that there would be um, proper performance for the needs of today. And it has created a severe experience for uh, state uh, benefit recipients who are at least trying to get recipients their benefits. So for me, experience of almost losing an agency and then COVID shut us down and having to look at what it means to stay afloat and what funding can make us operate. I see that as everybody in our state right now is asking those questions. They're having to look at those tough decisions. And as a representative, I see it as my job to make sure that the funding's there, the resources are there, that I stay out of the way of what will help businesses to get back into full operation and to keep in place as many of those services that will bridge us into a stable economic um, experience, which I hope is sooner than later. Thank you. Bonnie? Yeah, thank you. So this may be a little bit redundant, but continuing on with this theme, I think it's important and maybe gives you an opportunity to uh, expand upon some of these themes that you're, you're speaking to. Let me abbreviate this. In 2019, the legislature, I'll start with John, if that's okay, Representative Lively. In 2019, I think, the legislature proposed a cumulative $500 billion per biennium in new taxes on business. Additionally, over the course of the following year, a number of local governments and education providers sought support for local bonding to raise revenue for local services and infrastructure, some of which passed, some of which were tabled. Can you speak to what you view as the impact of some of these state level decisions downstream, if you will, on the local community? What's the bottom line issue and how will you lead toward resolution? Is there a way to balance the budget without putting our local business community economy in jeopardy? So what's the issue downstream from some of these? What's the impact on our local communities? And maybe it's good or bad. And how would you help resolve some of those issues in your position and your commitment to local community? So first, obviously it depends on the type of tax. And so most recently, quote, any new taxes we passed, the primary new tax that was passed was the business activity tax or the corporate activity tax. Did I get this right? Uh, <clears throat> which from a standpoint of impacting numbers of businesses in, impacted a small portion of the total businesses in the state directly, meaning paying the tax directly. What happened in that situation though, and we knew it when we were doing it, is it rolls downhill. It rolls downhill from the, stat, the standpoint 
that might be paid, the tax might be paid by multiple people, and each time they pay it, then that adds to the cost and the person on the other end. Uh, so I served on the committee that oversaw that, and I will continue to argue that it's, from my standpoint, it's a sales tax. It's a hidden sales tax in how that it's charged, and it's charged at the business level. But at the end of the day, in much of that tax is going to be paid by the consumer. So that one did roll downhill multiple times because it added on to the cost. Many people would argue, well, it's, they can just take it out of their profits. And that. We all know, and you know specifically, that in many cases, even large businesses, their margin is pretty small. And so if we added 1% or half a percent or something to that, because this tax is based on receipts, not on net income. And that's a huge difference when you're talking about, you know, we pay our income taxes on our net income is what we pay it on and businesses from an income tax too, but this is not what that tax does. So there is an example uh, from a standpoint of how it rolls down. Now the impact of it though, does indeed help local communities because that money is going directly to support K through 12 education. And what we'd heard over and over from businesses is we need to do more for K through 12 education in order to shore up the students when they graduate so they're prepared to work. Not all of them go on to college and that work and they need to be paid. And we all recognize it took more money. So the offset, we raised costs on everybody, but the money rolled back down to the schools directly for uh, school support. So in many things the state does, you know, that's what works out. Just briefly about the gas tax. So the gas tax we raised in 2017, and that everybody pays it because they pay it at the pump. But depending on, again, on business, if a business drives a lot of vehicles and things, it substantially had an impact on that particular business. Uh, half of the revenues that come from the gas tax go to counties and cities. So our local roads and that are dependent upon those revenues who come from the state. And that was another example. Both of those bills are example. We worked hard on all sides of this to find a compromise, recognize we agreed we needed to raise revenues uh, to try to create the resources both at the state and that to address it, but there isn't any question, whatever adjustment we make, whether to a business tax or an individual tax, it has downstream impacts. In many cases, most cases, it's gonna raise costs to a lot of different people, unfortunately, that's taxes. Very good, thank you, Ruth. Do you need Bonnie to repeat the message, uh, question? Um, she can add if I don't quite hit the points. Uh, what I really think need to be looked at is, uh, the pattern of creating a tax and then making it a statewide mandate, how that's going to be experienced is what I think has been the most crippling. Instead of creating a, a purpose for the tax and then giving the opportunity for local agencies to decide how is that going to be implemented for I'll I'll go with the uh, increase in the in the minimum wage uh, that was a mandate that really had a severe impact because it didn't take into effect a lot of those business variables that uh, it couldn't handle that extreme of an adjustment in a period of time. I, I can personally speak to that. It is not easy and yet it was mandated. So here again was a, a very challenging introduction of a regulation. Then you get these taxes on top. So that's a cost of doing business. And then there's these taxes 
that are um, not logical according to standard business practice, I, I think uh, Representative Lively explained it correctly, is we don't do this anywhere else in our business management to take off the top before you've experienced any of your expenses. And so how do you keep doing that without eroding the capabilities of an organization to move forward with that pro with a profit margin that's going to enable them to uh, operate. So uh, bottom line, there's, I really think there needs to be a general um, education on business principles. When we're talking about legislation that's going to have severe economic impacts on businesses that if that doesn't get to be part of the discussion, uh, you can argue all you want, but when voting ends up with it is implemented, and then you think, I'm going to hope it doesn't have trickle-down impacts, that's unrealistic. Our experience is it's happening. It needs to stop happening the way that it's um, been the system through our legislative sessions. And it would be my goal to speak up, vote differently, and really challenge the mindset that says we can continue to operate without, uh, from the top down, not really working with the end result impact. Thank you. Jake? Thank you. Um, Ruth, uh, this one's for you, and you kind of touched on a little bit around this question before. So uh, the question is, do you believe the state legislature should have more oversight on state agencies that provide emergency services? Oh, yes. Um, and I, not only yes, but I noticed in the last session, uh, we had a law that put in place, our governor was going to be the one who was going to mitigate the conversations between our natural resource, um, how they're, she's going to do the mediation sessions. And I just think there's a concern around thinking our governor has more understanding of how to manage resources than the experts who deal with it every day and part of their industry. So I'm, that's one place where I think we need to be smarter in working with the experts who are the ones who should be providing the input. And yes, the legislature and the governor is going to make the ultimate decisions, but I would want to make sure we're getting the information from our experts in the fire and the police and the, the logging industry especially, and all of those uh, agencies that transport through our farming that we actually are making sense out of the ultimate results of that whole conversation so that we've got a common sense strategy that isn't just 
putting a finger in the dike and hoping uh, we've got it figured out just because we want it to um, fit our budget or fit our um, goals for the future. Are you done? I think I, you were wanting to know how I would fix it for the future or is it dealing with it right now? Do you believe the state legislature should have more oversight on state agencies that provide emergency services? If they're being federally funded, yes. If, they're, if they just need regulations in order to uh, safeguard safety or make sure that they're resourced effectively, but as much as possible, leave them alone and let them do what they're designed to do. Good. So we've been here about 55 minutes. Do we need to pause and take a break or can we keep going? Everybody's good? I'll drink some water. <laughs> John, do you need me to repeat that? Uh, Rep Representative Lively, do you need me to repeat that one? Uh, no, I, I think I've got it. You want me to answer that one? Yes, same question. Thank you. Sure. Uh, <clears throat> so from an oversight standpoint, so a couple things happen. We have both from a budget standpoint and the legislature through the Ways and Means process provides budget oversight for all the emergency, all of those departments involved in providing emergency services in that. So first, from a budget standpoint, and I, the only uh, budget subcommittee I've ever served on is education, but I appreciate the process they go through. So the departments come in, they talk about what their, their current budget is, how they justify that budget, what are we getting for it? And a large number of stakeholders are part of that besides the departments. And so those conversations, you get all sides of the coin uh, and many times that, that is both from public partners, the counties and the cities, but also from private partners, fire districts, there's special districts and things. And so from a budget standpoint, there is that oversight. The other way the oversight is provided through a policy standpoint. So there's also policy committees that oversee those. And I served on the emergency services policy committee uh, for two sessions and tried to understand the link between, okay, so what's the state doing? The Office of Emergency Services, how does that work and are we providing the correct uh, resources? You know, one of the things I learned in that process was our center, which becomes the emergency response center for the state and the statewide response center, is not, is not prepared for an earthquake. So what we know what happens in an earthquake is if it gets to rumbling and shaking, if the building may not fall, but if it disrupts, well, the center we have in the state of Oregon, though it's new, was not built to Standards. So that's one of the things the state needs to figure a way to address because we need to if it's going to be the central point of response. Uh, so that's that's an example of where the state uh, plays a role. But so from a policy standpoint, we're mostly looking at so how how is our response? And we'll get a great example after the both COVID and the fires this year. How did we respond? Whether it's the Forest Service Department, whether it's the Health Authority. So where are the gaps? Where did we miss? You know, we've heard a lot from on the COVID standpoint of mixed messages. People didn't understand the, the what we were saying, what's going on or not going, and that's created things from the public. The schools are beside themselves with the rules and things that we've come out with to try to comply with it. So there's a lot of lessons we're going to learn there. I think it tells us that our ability to respond in some cases is too slow. 
So at the end of the day, when you look at it from a policy, in many cases, it wasn't rapid enough, and did it support, again, providing the services in the field? Uh, I, I feel pretty good about the fire response and what we've done. I'm not quite so good about the COVID response and what we've done. We've got some lessons to learn there. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's, it's again, what can we do both human persons and public money-wise to support the efforts to respond to these? And the policy committee is ultimately one that would change the direction those, those uh, departments would go if they needed to change the direction. Very good. Thank you. Okay, uh, I have a sub question that's, I'm listening to both of you speak. Regarding fires, I'll start with you, John. There's a lot of speculation and we know we had some arson. We know some was started by a power line. Uh, the predominant thought is the issue with the fires is forest management, not climate change issues. What do you believe we know for sure at the state level? And how can we have the right kind of conversations so that it's not pushed extreme left or extreme right, but people can sit down and look at all the facts and talk about this issue of um, the logging industry? So first, just let me say, I, it's, a, it's multiple factors that have led us to this point that we have these massive fires. In climate change, and I'm not arguing about what's creating climate change, but climate change is a factor in it because of the dry conditions and the droughts and the raising temperatures. That is indeed a factor. Now, also management of the forest ongoing. Unfortunately, that's where one of the big debates continues and we haven't been able to reach a consensus that management of the forest along, uh, and from my standpoint, managing the forest includes logging. Uh, so that's, you know, if we're not doing those things, it is. So the management of the forest, both what's on the forest floor and or uh, the trees being too close together and all of those things are all part of what this occurs and we have some examples in the state of better forest management especially east of the mountains where they work together and do that and if you travel east in the summertime in many cases you'll see them thinning the pine forest and burning underneath the map and those are the types of things we know that work to help to prevent that but we haven't done much of that on the west side it's been hard to reach that uh, at the same time we do need to understand better the causes and certainly Unfortunately, quite a few of the causes are human caused. Some are deliberately set, some are accidentally set. Uh, but we also need to understand, I was just talking to a group today about how we start addressing this, more of the impacts of the power lines and how we address those impacts of the power lines. Because it's one thing to ask the power companies to shut them off, but what about those people that have wells and communications and things that live out there if we shut off their power and how do they respond to the emergency? So it's not simple by just saying, Turn off the power so there's no risk. So that's a huge issue the state is going to have to wrestle with as we talk about uh, this going forward. But it's my hope, and frankly, what the governor was talking about in the last session that we weren't successful in doing, the whole plan for responding to wildfire, there was pieces of that that started talking about management and how we do a better job of managing. It's going to take a pretty comprehensive plan, but it's going to take all sides to come together. We can't stay split like we are today about one or the other and saying well, it's all your fault or it's all not your fault. It's a combination of those things, but from a timing standpoint, the timing's more critical than it's ever been because the temperatures, the droughts, just those conditions have made what we've created in our forest even worse from a fire risk. Uh, so it's my hope when we, whoever gets back in 2021, that we can again start those conversations and the sides agree we need to find some common ground uh, to do a much better job than we were prepared to do, frankly, this year. 
Thank you. I had to mute myself because it's raining so hard here and the thunder is going on. <laughs> That's a good sound. <laughs> yeah. So in case you guys didn't know, it was just announced Supreme Court Justice Ruth Ginsburg has died of pancreatic cancer. Just announced. Oh. Uh, all right, uh, Ruth, if you should win this election, I know you have some ideas on the issues around logging, forest management, uh, climate change. This is a big issue for the state. This is a big mm -hmm. issue for the constituents of District 12. What are your thoughts? How would you bridge the gap? How would you ensure that all considerations are given mutual respect without us running too far in any one direction too fast? Well, thank you. Uh, I think it's definitely inviting as many of the stakeholders as possible who have an interest in this topic and that in and of itself is uh, going to set the tone for the conversation and making sure it's a as much as possible kind of a free flow let's explore all the options and uh, really get beyond those standard positions and really look at what do we need in order for all of these different um, interests have a piece of the pie. And uh, if that's going to take uh, some compromise, if it's going to take some uh, hard look at the reality of can we support it? Um, yes, it's a nice idea, but is that realistic given other goals for the state's resources? I think my experience with contentious um, conversations is the leadership has to take the, as much action as possible to learn what is really at the core of the issue, not just all the the past impressions, but what is going on right now that needs to be looked at and listen with a concern that is very respectful, that also can give others an opportunity to hear and have the conversations. I think we're getting more opportunities in our sessions if they're open to the public for interested groups to participate i think we really need to give it the priority so that if that means we have multiple hearings we have we invite those uh, representatives we really give it as much investment of resources within the legislative process to create some uh, realistic plans, uh, a bill, some uh, guidelines that lets us move forward and really capture what we can do to build a future that balances the needs of our industries and also for those who want to preserve our resources for the future. Very good, thank you. Bonnie? Can I switch and start with Ruth? Okay. 
Okay. <laughs> I'm not sure if there was a rule on that. Okay. So Ruth, I'll start with you and, and John will be the same question. The pandemic, the mandates associated with the public health risk mitigation, mm -hmm. and now the wildfires have deeply impacted our small business community. What message would you most like to convey to business owners and leaders at this time? What ideas do you have or will you commit to doing to assist in the long recovery we have ahead of us? My message would be we, we can make it turn around. The minute we have the resources we need, the state is working hard to provide those PPEs to the small business owners. If there's any obstacles to getting those items, uh, I would work hard to make sure those uh, obstacles are taken care of. But the main message is communicate, communicate, communicate. There's uh, let local agencies know uh, what your needs are. Are you having a hard time getting uh, staff? Is there any regulations that are challenging to move forward? And there may be a waiver. If we could come up with maybe some temporary waivers in order to let us do those incremental steps that may buy us time before uh, we see some real breakthroughs like a vaccine or if there's some other changes to how we can stay safe. I, the, we've got so much changing so often. If there's a way we as leaders can stabilize our decisions so that the businesses can plan, that would be so helpful. Um, so I would want to stay as much in touch with the small businesses to understand every time that there's a um, change in the COVID guidelines, what did that mean for the trickle-down effect? What, did, what happened to the restaurant industry? We just really need to understand what we thought was a small change could have been huge. And I think that's what's going to help the small businesses feel like they're not out on an island, is if there's this close connection with the state representative, um, my phone call be on their speed dial so that they can say, Ruth, did you realize that now I have to do um, six cleanings a day and I can't see any business, I can't conduct any business. Is there any way to change how we do that? So I just think I'd give hope that we're in this as leadership to help them move forward, not necessarily leave them to their own um, devices to figure this out. So I would, I would communicate first, and I agree that communication is probably the critical list, but I would communicate, I certainly as elected representative understand the importance of business to any recovery, to both their survival and the recovery, because jobs at the end of the day and people having good paying jobs and the ability to support their families is what makes the economy overall work. And so if the businesses, one of my biggest concerns through all of this is how many of the small businesses we're going to lose. 
because I know we are going to lose small businesses. And for me personally, that's frustrating, especially in the community of Springfield, when I've seen the growth that's occurred and the great new small businesses that have sprung up. Uh, that's very frustrating, frustrating for them. I've been in a somewhat unique position as chair of the Economic Development Committee and directly involved in trying to devise some of the programs to respond both to the small businesses, to the cultural arts communities and that. So understand the legislature is not in session. And so we have limited things as a legislature we can do, but the e-board and the governor are the ones that are really leading the charge on this. And, and I've been fortunate enough to be worked with groups of people, especially a lot of small businesses to try to crack programs in the near term that are most effective to helping them at this point survive because we're not to the recovery stage in many cases, but helping get through the rest of this. So when we get to the point that they can fully reopen and what to do and the lessons learned from that, and in fact, we'll be going back to the e-board next week, trying to make some more changes to the purview because I've heard back from many small businesses that wasn't working, they're unable to access the funds. I appreciate and understand that stuff and I'm on their side to try to do it, uh, but it's a difficult process when the session, when the legislature is not in session itself, all I can do is provide that input. The other key thing then at this point though, from my standpoint is understanding, so where are we at and what else is it gonna take? Because we know it's 2021, it's 2022, it's 20, I don't, I heard yesterday 24 or something for the state for a lot of our businesses to get back to business as normal. And so a key for me then is to look at all the things we have in place because I believe Many things we have in place aren't positioned correctly for what businesses are facing versus some of these programs have been in place for 20 years. And so we need to get back and look at, so day, especially based on COVID and the fire impacts, then what can we do today that's gonna to be different that helps them both recover? And obviously those that lost their businesses that they burned down is even a larger challenge. And one of the key things there is going to be land use and especially those in the rural areas because of the rules and regulations about being able to rebuild or not rebuild, or to clean the sites up enough so they're environmentally sound to do it. And the state's gonna play a big role in those, and we need to be resp more responsive than we have in the past, and especially understand the rural divide. So the key for me, for them now, is we need to keep talking about it, working together, and adjusting, adjusting, adjusting our, as we go forward, because not one model is going to work, and it's just gonna take a lot of uh, intervention from the state standpoint, intervention means support, financial support and other support in order for businesses to make it through this, all of the, the challenges that are going on. Very good, thank you, Jake. Uh, another forest fire question. Um, as a state legislator, what do you think the obstacles to preventative measures to reduce wildfires are uh, as a state legislator, uh, John? Uh, Rep. Lively, Let's start with you. Uh, so <laughs> I think first major obstacle is the, the wide range of opinions and there's no agreement on how to address it. And it's only got worse over the years instead of better. And I mentioned earlier about Eastern Oregon, there's an example there, didn't happen quickly, but there's an example there of environmental groups, the industry itself, the state, the regulators coming together and agreeing on plans to how to both address managing, but also to use products, to take products from the, the forest and then to do it. Uh, it took long times of negotiation and it took all sides recognize everybody was going to have to give some in order to do that. And unfortunately here west of the Cascades, we haven't reached that point yet that the parties, and I'm not picking on any one particular party, that the parties have been able to get there. The conversations that went on before the last session with many of the groups that brought forth the plan that was brought forth as far as 
over the years of managing the net was getting closer to it. And there was even some movement to reach the agreement. So first and foremost, the sides have got to recognize, all sides have got to recognize, it's the good of the state and its people for us to find common grounds and way to address that. Secondly, from my standpoint, we ought to recognize that indeed forest resources are a very viable asset and they're a very valuable asset, not just recreation, but also industry-wise. It's still critical, it's critical for rural Oregon to have the use of those resources that create the jobs in that. And I still believe we can do both of those. We can create all those things, but that's a hard struggle, but it really takes people coming to it. But I hope what will come out of the forest fires we had now uh, is a, a reinforcing that, that it's just time we've got to come to the table and we got to do that. We all know the problem's going to be it's going to take too long though, because we have a limited time before we'll get through the winter. And unfortunately, this winter we're probably going to see uh, runoff and all kinds of issues with our waterways and that created from what we've lost in the retentions of a forest that are going to create other problems, uh, which in some cases will reinforce arguments on both sides of the, the equation about why we should or shouldn't do anything. But won't be long, we'll be back to spring and summer and the session, from a legislative standpoint, doesn't even start till late January or February. And if we somehow found agreement in the session, we're talking years, years to implement plans because of the cost it would take to do that. So to me, you know, we just we got to quit this divide thing and say let's get let's get back to what's the common cause for the state and start figuring out how to do it. And I believe there's incremental things we can do. We don't have to wait for multiple years, but the biggest issue is going to take years to resolve. Um, Thank you. I don't, I agree with a lot of what Representative Lively uh, presented. I, I think the, what I see as the bigger challenge is how our resources are viewed. There is such a different view about what's here in the state of Oregon when you're talking about uh, somebody who's in the Portland area who uh, than those who are in more of other parts of the state who actually live off the industries of the resources of logging and fishing and and our wild areas of the state. And when you've got, I believe the percentage was amazingly high. It was in the 90% of this state is undeveloped and it's, um, and it doesn't have occupants in it. When you've got that large of a resource available and it's not being seen as a a blend of recreation and beauty and an attraction for tourists and it also needs to support our people. That conversation uh, needs to have both sides of the aisle taking into account the, the value of the industries all being important for the survival of our state and if we start going into it only can be used one way then we're we're going to lose everything that all those other organizations or, or uh, interests are looking for it, we're all part of the same need to work with our natural resources and so i 
think at the legislature, there needs to be more people standing up and saying, we won't just give in to the standard mindset uh, that serves a special interest group that has a lot of control over decisions right now. And that takes a, a tough mindset and that's what I would bring as a representative. I think I wouldn't be interested in just settling if it's not going to give us the opportunity for everything to be allowed in the forest in a balanced way. There is a way to manage it. There's history of managing it. And there are definitely um, opportunities with new industry uh, tools and also need for the forest that needs to be part of the conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Bonnie, I've got a lot of heavy rain on this metal building I'm sitting in. If you could ask your next question, so I can, if this sound doesn't get recorded. All right, I'll take this opportunity. We're gonna play a little role reversal. So <laughs> get your role reversal uh, mindset on. So Representative Lively and Ruth, um, you're a small business owner. You're a small business owner and Jake and I are your elected representatives. Mark might be the, uh, the president and CEO of the Springfield Chamber of Commerce, I don't know. But at least Jake and I are your representatives and you're the business owner. What would you ask of us? <clears throat> and I'll start with uh, John. Uh, what would I ask of you? Well, first I would ask just for respect and understanding the role that as a small business person I play in the, the success of our, our region and our state. Because I believe in many cases that's not widely recognized, or it's, it may be recognized, but it's pushed aside when we're making decisions in that. So as, as a small business, I'm going to keep keep hammering how important it is, because small business is the majority of businesses in the state, employs the majority of people, and creates the majority of jobs. And so as a small business, I'm going to keep hammering that to my elected representatives to hopefully that it carries through uh, as you're making decisions to understand that, because it's very, I believe, with elected representatives, it's very easy to get distracted in responding to some key issues with big businesses. And we don't have that many state, but we have some uh, that are get a lot of attention in things and state representatives respond to that and change things that might work for the very largest of the businesses and they can accommodate it, but it only further hampers my business ability as a small business to do business. It's, it's that whole thing of what rolls downhill. Uh, and so from my standpoint, first and foremost is that secondly, secondly, as there's what, what, whatever the issues are that the state controls, whether it be through occupational health and safety, uh, whether it be through bullying, as a small business, I'm going to be at the table continually reminding my state representatives, here's how it's impacting me personally. Obviously, they're going to hear from a lot of people. You'll hear from a lot of people on all sides of the issue, but I wouldn't be uh, afraid uh, to keep hammering those, but recognize. So I also, as a small business, would recognize that I'm just one of many out there and not all of us are the same. And our needs in that may be different depending on the type of business we have, where our revenue comes from. Uh, so that's 
So that's important. The other thing I would keep emphasizing to my elected representatives is I'm on your side. So we're all in this to help the state and help our citizens and ultimately to employ people and help families survive and to do well. And so when it comes to whether it's uh, minimum wages or those other things, it's not that I'm against those things, but I have to balance those things. There has to be a balance because I, if I don't stay in business, then my employees, three, four, five, whatever they are, won't have a job. And so I agree with the long term where we're trying to get so families can survive and do those things. But I just think it's important as a small business to recognize sometimes it's going to take more time or it needs to be slower than just to say tomorrow we're going to switch what we're doing. Thank you. I would be uh, inquiring how you could create a more dynamic reciprocal uh, relationship between your responsibility to uh, be on that higher level of understanding of state laws and rules and regulations and kind of what's coming down the pike that could impact me and uh, my business and that you will be proactive to engage me, to um, help me participate in this relationship of, of input and uh, I get an opportunity to let you know, hey, before you make that um, decision on a bill, uh, are you gonna vet it by me in a timely manner so that I can give you feedback? and give you as much um, information so that if there's an opportunity to adjust or amend there, um, we're as proactive and I, I feel like you then are representing me. And in that process, I would wanna hear back a reporting on what was the result of that engagement and that um, I then would see this um, real connection of your role as a representative and mine as a constituent in your district and, and in your organization of the Chamber of Commerce that we are a team and that my uh, experience is what you're looking for as the kind of the monitor of your success and also keep you connected to the community that you're representing and understanding how much we as businesses need to understand what's going on at in Salem and that we also need to understand how we can be those um, oversight uh, resources to let you know that's not working <laughs> or hey that really made a difference so that you've got a realistic um, experience with the decisions that are happening in your role as representative thank you both Okay, the rain settled down on my end. All right, John, I have a question. Now, as you stated earlier, the budget for Oregon is 86 billion with a B. 
And really what the legislature does is you oversee what's in the general fund, which is approximately 26 million. Is that correct? Billion. Billion. I apologize. Uh, so for those that are listening that don't really understand uh, what's, you gave a, a quick review of what's in the general fund and some of the lottery dollars. Can you expand on both of those areas so those that will hear this will know how that's really dispersed throughout the state a little more? Well, first, understand that the legislature has jurisdiction over all $85 billion, but we have the most discretion over how we spend those funds, the general fund and the lottery. So the whole budget is subject to legislative review, and we could choose to, I'll pick out an example, in some cases we could choose to decrease an area of expenditures in a certain department, and let's pick on forestry, because forestry rate brings a lot of money and it doesn't come from general tax dollars and then through fees and things that they do, and so does the natural resource committees. And so that's revenue, that's not general fund revenue necessarily, but that's revenue that's controlled. The legislature could move that and hurt the department of doing it. So we have jurisdiction over all those things. But So I'll make a couple free comments though about here. And so I talked about K through 12 education being nine billion of that dollars. Three, another three and a half to four billions is uh, higher education. And then there's another educational fund that funds, that supplements the education fund. And so education in general is about 15 billion dollars that we spend in the state. And the majority of that is lottery dollars and general fund income taxes that people pay, either businesses and or people where that money comes from. Uh, human services, so again, the health authority, but human services and the health authority, uh, that particular area is about $36 billion. Uh, and then there's some others in there, the majority of which is not state funds, the majority of which is federal funds, but if we didn't put the state funds in there, then that would not be available. And, and the legislature spends a lot of time in those areas overseeing both from a standpoint of healthcare, because uh, the Oregon Health Plan Act falls into that area. And so are we reaching the majority of citizens that are eligible for the health plan? Are they getting the services that they need? Is it cost effective? That's an area. And the other area that everybody hears a lot about is in the human services and child welfare. And we've done woefully poor in this state over the years, of both investing enough for having a system that responds to the needs of children and families uh, that are in crisis. And so but that's another area. It's a big part of the budget, but we have limited abilities to raise, provide uh, more funds in that particular area. And the other area that I would just pick on is uh, policing, prisons, the judicial system, the courts, and that's all part of the state. Uh, and we've made progress in, a, in doing some changes to the criminal justice system. And so we've diminished the prison population because it's very expensive to put in there. We've helped with community policing and doing things back in the communities at the level you should to help people do. Uh, but it's a large portion, 13, 14 billion dollars of our budget uh, that's there. And most of that is general fund money and federal money to do. Uh, but those are examples. And that's really the majority of the control we have in the state from a revenue standpoint, general fund, that's where the majority of those funds are spent. The rest of it's a pretty small portion other than the gas tax that funds roads. And that's dedicated by constitution for roads and bridges is what that money goes to. Very good, thank you. Now, Ruth, I know you've been looking into the budget and you definitely have some ideas about how the budget might, you might make some adjustments if you're elected as District 12 representative. Uh, please share with those that are listening, if you are indeed elected, what some of those ideas are and what you would like to try to do differently. 
Thank you. I would definitely like to see a, a stringent uh, review of a lot of the state agencies' budgets in order to um, check and make sure for the amount of money they've been receiving that the outcomes and the definite management is in line with the budget to where when they're asking for more, we're, um, we're going to get more value out of those funds. So I, before we start trimming away at anything, I think accountability has overdue for several agencies that uh, keep ballooning their budgets. But as a, as a representative, I would be questioning is the taxpayer really getting their value out of um, the funds in the budget for their particular department? I would also like to see more of the funds being in the pockets of taxpayers by reducing tax uh, measures and reforming some of those uh, guidelines that have been put in place that are taking money away that individuals aren't being allowed to um, use in their own lives. Uh, it's the states being uh, given direction to manage areas of our lives that I think are becoming more and more out of line of what um, I believe we're in position as leaders to, um, I wanna see more freedoms. And so in the areas of education and in our areas of, I really liked our small business er to have less taxes and that we as consumers have fewer taxes so that we actually get to spend our money on those programs and interests that we want to see in our communities. And I don't think our schools need as much as they've been given. I think there's a call now for some accountability in how that budget is being managed. As parents are looking, especially with the COVID consequences, is there a better way to allow families to have choice? And in that, the budget's gonna shift. Maybe there's some resources, especially for training, that can better uh, give some prepared workers for our businesses. And also businesses having more choices in their um, management of their funds as they're trying to operate. So our budget, I think, could be trimmed a bit. Thank you. Uh, your question, Jake? Okay, moving on to a COVID-related question around emergency. Um, the CARES Act bill was passed as an economic stimulus package for the COVID-19 crisis. Oregon was awarded uh, 1.3 billion up to 45% is intended to made it available to local governments. However, a limited amount has been given to local governments, ones that are um, less than 500,000 uh, population. So that's all counties except for uh, Multnomah and Washington. Um, 
some legislators have determined that the state could utilize the funds better than county governments and withheld funds. Uh, notice that it's not necessarily a partisan issue. Um, as a state representative, what would be your approach to the CARES Act uh, money distribution? And uh, uh, let's start with uh, Ruth. Great question. I think um, if that money was allocated, it needs to be distributed accordingly. And it would be my purpose to um, follow up on that allotment going to the county. And if it's not being allocated the way it was um, given to the state, I would be speaking up and I would be drawing attention to it because every day that those funds aren't made available for distribution at the local level puts at jeopardy a lot of uh, businesses and industries and uh, people's livelihood. So I definitely saw that happen. And I understand there's, there was a decision made that again was at the state level feeling uh, they could make a better um, use of those funds. And I really feel that's a tragedy and a very risky uh, decision because we don't have the time to wait to um, see those funds trickle down uh, at a future decision. They're, they're needed now. And so I would, I would fight for it to be happening now. And if it means I have to get a coalition of other um, representatives uh, who are probably experiencing the same thing in their counties and their districts that um, we would uh, need to speak out. You still got about a minute and 20 seconds. Did you add anything? Well, let's see. Um, hmm. Nope, that pretty much says it. So, uh, Jake, I've been uh, fortunate. As you know, these decisions mostly have been made by the emergency board and the governor, how they distribute. And I've been in very close contact with our county here and with our cities and other counties and cities and have advocated on their behalf multiple times. Uh, in fact, in one of the emergency board meetings, a measure didn't pass that they were ready to pass because enough of us advocated and said, this isn't the way we thought it was supposed to do. That's the only way we can influence this process and we've tried to influence the process. Uh, the opportunity to have some direction on the venues and the small businesses was another example. It had gone to the emergency board a certain way. Enough of us raised the issue and said, no, we think the need more. And this is not to criticize the emergency board because everything's happened fairly quickly. But so it takes a coalition of people outside the emergency board saying will, and then be willing to meet. So the subgroup that I work with, Democrats and Republicans, the coast, Eastern Oregon, to put together, because I've heard and agreed with the criticism from the standpoint of the money that went to Washington and Portland versus what was coming downfield. But I also recognize, so one of the things I do recognize is that many of the state expenditures are purchasing items and things that are needed to cross the state. And one of the reasons the state should be the repository versus individual counties is because as this pandemic has occurred, it's been it's moved around from where the impact was good or bad, meaning that in fact it's more severe in certain places. And if the money had simply been allocated per capita to counties and cities, and they were not the ones being most directly impacted, but another county, the cities in it was being more severely impacted, and they didn't have the funds because their allocation was 
then we would be lost. So I agree that some of it needed to be, there's a balance there. Uh, and the last I had heard, uh, the cities and counties hadn't, uh, hadn't spent all the money that was allocated the first time on a reimbursement space for cost. And so part of the discussion went back to what was an eligible cost or what wasn't an eligible cost. And I spent a lot of time with our local cities and the county understanding other things that they felt would comply with the cost. Uh, we made those arguments. Some of those changes were made. Some of the changes were not. Uh, no perfect system, unfortunately, but that's our role as local people was to speak out before the emergency board and the governor were making those decisions to try to influence. Some cases we were successful in influencing them. Other cases we were not. Uh, my biggest concern at this point is we just don't leave any money on the table, meaning that through all of this shuffling, because <laughs> the money has to be spent by December 31st. And I would be very disappointed is by trying to control too much at the state level versus getting it to the local levels that any of that money was left because there's plenty of need for the money to be invested. So at this point, that's the kind of questions we're still asking both locally and at. So what hasn't been taken care of and are there funds yet that haven't been spent that we can move to some other place and be more actively involved with those? Thank you. Okay, uh, we're gonna move to Bonnie. This will be the last question before we move to the seven minutes uh, final statements. I'm gonna go off script at least my questions that I had written down because I think it's important the topic that we were discussing. And I think it's on top of a lot of business people's minds. While we've, um, and the chamber has been heavily involved as well as our local government economic development agencies, and this is statewide, in what I would, at, at least what was presented early on as a robust and honest intent, dating back to April and May, to bring forth business and industries input and views really exactly what Ruth was talking about. The, the intent felt authentic to hear from the business community, to understand what's going on, to get some impact so that decisions that were before the emergency board, obviously your committee, John, listened to a lot of that and you yourself and your committee put forth some really good proposals. In the end, time and time again, and I will just represent general sentiment that we feel statewide being involved with the, the uh, state chamber and my peers across the state, that somehow there was a disconnect in that feedback loop, in that feedback loop, given what John you just mentioned, and also things like the regulation, the con the conversation right now that will be presented in draft regulation of Oregon OSHA on rules and regulations that are extremely costly, on top of already costly mandates and guidances that business community has to the tune of 97, 98% being com been compliant with. So with that context, and given that we have maybe a few short months to make amends or do our best or make, you know, correct course, what, what can we hope for? And how can you advocate? And Ruth, this might be a little bit off, but consider what would the, be the questions you would ask if you were in position today? And I, I don't know if that's fair. It's kind of a long conversation. I'll just leave it open-ended. Given those circumstances, 
John, how do you respond to those real concerns that you hear in that regard and have been in the middle of? So as a, a person who feels strongly public input, continual public and open input, this has been enormously frustrating for me too, I can tell you. We, did, we weren't prepared for a system that would shut down the ability to meet individually or in groups as we normally do during the process, both during the session or outside of the session. And so trying to find a forum and provide people enough notice in which to participate in the forum. And then if they participate enough time in the forum, we've not been very successful at that. I, I myself have participated in some of those forums because I'm not up there doing it either. And I get my one minute or 30 seconds or two minutes like everybody else does and come away very frustrated. Uh, and so part of that's created by the, the need to act quickly. Part of that's created by not the legislature not being able to meet and have these robust conversations of that. But it's mostly created by we weren't prepared for anything that would shut down our system, how we communicated and do things. And so I agree entirely. You know, I'm enormously concerned about how we go forward with the next session if we're not able to meet in person. I don't know how that's going to work. It's beside me how the public, whether they be private businesses or individual citizens, will get a fair shot at participating in that process if we can't do something. So we're going to have a lot of conversations with that. Unfortunately, Bonnie, I wish I could say things are going to change quickly before we get to the end of the year. They're not. Uh, the emergency board is scheduled to meet again next week. The agenda is set. What they're going to do is set. There isn't going to be any public input. That's the way the process has been going. Uh, if there's another special session, it would be in November sometime in that. I'm not advocating for that. I don't know why we would hold a special, another special session. We have no more ability to have the conversations and things. Uh, but it's frustrating, absolutely frustrating for businesses and the public. Uh, but I don't have a ready answer in the near term. All I can say is uh, a lot of people know how to reach me. Many people have my cell phone. They have my email. And I have continued to encourage people to call me, to email me, to get a hold of Andrew, my staff in that, so at least we can have some conversations. And I provide that feedback to the governor or to the Senate president or the, the Speaker of the House. I'm one member, but I'm more than willing to advocate on behalf of people and try. In some cases, we've slowed it down. We've influenced it. Other cases, we have not. But otherwise, there's not a quick answer to do that. I know everybody's frustrated with the inability to have robust public conversations about a lot of very important uh, policies. Uh, I recently talked with OSHA about theirs. I'm not on those policy committees, and that's, but I had the conversation. Ruth encouraged me to have that conversation when she raised the issues. And that was helpful to find out, but that didn't mean I have much influence over what's going to happen in that particular case. Um, I would, I would say that we've got to do something outside the box. I understand there's uh, certain restrictions because of uh, policies and guidelines as a legislative role. Um, but as a state representative, okay, we've got some challenges in what we used to be able to do, but that doesn't mean we, uh, we've got creative ways to uh, get information, polling, uh, we could be um, creating those town hall and experiences that really creates as many platforms as possible for that input and also for um, 
getting as much information out there and received so that if there is a special session that has limitations on participation, we've been proactive as representatives to get as much of the front load of, of them educated on what's uh, going to be voted on and as much information from the constituents about their feeling of it so that we uh, as a representative can um, voice and stand and part of what I'm I'm hearing in your uh, questioning Vani is when are we going to be mad enough and tired of the process that has um, hogtied us into legislation that is not serving the public. Um, I'm not content with uh, there's nothing that can be done. Uh, if let's speak out, let's say there's there's a where the challenge is, because I think the more the public knows where those um, strongholds are that are keeping us from moving ahead in a proactive um, decision and action for the benefit of small businesses, people will then know where to put their attention. And if we can help them know, okay, go and talk to the Oregon Emergency Management decision makers or Who's the committee that's involved with having the OSHA oversight? Um, if I'm limited, I don't want to limit the public. The public is who I'm supposed to be the voice for. And if I'm being restricted in how I can influence and impact for the benefit of the businesses and the, um, my district, I want them in the fight. Okay, very good. We've got about 15 minutes left and each one of you has a chance to make a final full seven minute uh, closing uh, statement to the voters. So Ruth, you're the opponent, you're the uh, challenger. We will begin with you. Great. Well, I've enjoyed this uh, forum because it's been definitely an opportunity. It's always educated me. Uh, every time I've had a chance to look at the issues that are impacting the district as well as the state. I am obviously not a politician, I, but I'm a learner who definitely advocates for those who need support and also for any organization I'm a part of. My leadership skills are designed for making things improve. I'm not settling for the status quo. When I decided to run for state representative, I recognized I hadn't been any political position, but I had been a leader in every organization that I had been a part of. And that taught me that skill set and experience can make a difference when it's applied to a situation that needs change and it needs investment in order to move forward. So I'm looking at my role as representative for Springfield is 
a blend of my experience in a large urban community and my work experience in a rural where I have a deep understanding of how both worlds need to be in balance and also be mutually beneficial in the decisions that are made in Salem for all aspects of our lives as um, citizens of Oregon. And when I go to Salem, I want to be in representing the true values of Springfield. They want to just work and live a life with more freedoms, less restrictions, and an opportunity to grow and expand without oversight that comes from the state that's unnecessary. And part of that is removing some of those taxes and looking for reform wherever possible. I'm not for defunding things if they're working. And if the constituents in District 12 are interested in seeing those programs continue. But if there's not a good representation of their values, I want to speak up for that. I also want to champion what's important in our growth as a state because our economic vitality is decided by a small supermajority decision makers that are really making it hard for any other voice to be heard in Salem. So I encourage you as you look at the ballots for November that you will recognize and do your homework and find out how the how it operates in Salem. I've had an education that is not going to stop because I have gotten in touch with an understanding of our state rules and regulations and laws and political system that is not healthy right now and it needs balance and I may be inexperienced but sending a Republican to Salem starts the process of change and you'll know hopefully you've seen it tonight that I have a passion for making change happen even if I'm standing alone if I'm the only voice that's speaking out against what needs to be changed or what needs to be added to what's going on in our state, I will be that advocate for your, you and your vote. So I'm Ruth Linos. I'm running for state representative in House District 12, and I'd be proud to have your vote. All right, John, you're the incumbent. Uh, your final comments tonight, sir? Seven minutes. Thank, thank you. And thank you, uh, Bonnie and Jake, for taking part in this uh, very important process. So several things. First, I just want to continue to thank people for having the opportunity I've had since 2013 to serve. So I'm proud to live in Springfield. I've lived in Springfield since I was a junior in high school. It's my home. It's where I raised my family. It's where my grandkids are growing up. And it means an enormous amount to me. I've worked in economic development. I've done an enormous amount of things 
And so it's, it's the highest honor from my standpoint to be able to represent this community. And I think because of all of that, I continue to have a good sense of where the community's at, what its needs are. People here recognize and understand that I'm willing to listen to them and try to represent their interests. So first and foremost, that's where it's at. Secondly, you know, serving the legislature is the greatest learning experience I've ever had in my life. And I, that's no discredit to K through 12 or higher education. All that was important. But it's fascinating to be up there and understand how issues come about or don't come about, who has the power, who doesn't have the power, who is listening to who or who isn't listening to it. But mostly from my standpoint, just to understand the policies and what's the basis for the policies and what are the issues on both sides. So my style, and you can ask people in the legislature, I'm probably one of the most nonpartisan people in the legislature. I don't play partisan politics. I play policy politics about what's the best policy for this state. So anybody on all sides of the issues can come into my office, and they do, and present their points of view and have a conversation about it. And sometimes we will agree to disagree. But I respect the right for people to be able to do that, and I think that helps me be more effective because I can't be effective if I made up my mind on the issue before we really have those compelling arguments. Uh, and so from my standpoint, that's part of the style of how you do things. What I've learned is very important is ultimately you're effective by being a person people respect and trust. And if you aren't a person people can respect and trust, you can have the loudest voice in the legislature and never be effective. I don't pretend nor want to be the loudest voice in the legislature. I want to be an effective voice in the legislature. And having served, I've got the trust on both sides of the aisles of my colleagues, and I thought I won't double-cross them. We'll have a frank conversation, and if I'm there and can support, I will tell them that. If I can't, I will tell them that, so that people understand where I'm coming from. But I'll never, I'll never double-cross them. I won't get up and criticize one way or the other what they're doing. And I believe that's helped in recent years, especially for me to be more effective, because I've done more co-sponsoring bills with Republicans and Democrats try to work across the aisle because I think that's uh, important to do. Uh, I have continued to have the communication. And so when I'm in legislature, most people know my assistant who's been with me since 2012 also. Uh, and he has the ability, because when you're in session, there's meetings, committee hearings and things, and you're on the floor, you're not necessarily directly accessed. But we have this working relationship that Andrew knows, the people that are calling the importance of the issues and responding, and is able to get to me so that we can respond quickly and provide information as it's happening. The other thing I know is that the process that, that we use in this state isn't the ideal from a standpoint of how you best make decisions. And here's the issue. We're limited at the time we're in session. And I don't disagree with the citizens why they would limit us. I understand they're concerned about that. But by limiting us, the time frames become very short. And so the, the out, opportunity for public input in that in many cases is very, it may be one public hearing that lasts two hours, and then we make a major policy decision to start to move it. That's frustrating for me as a legislature, because that's not, I can tell you working in city councils, that's not how we did things. But that's because of the timeframe, by constitution, we're restricted in how long we can be there. So I think a couple things. One, I've told people I believe that we ought to severely restrict the bills that can be introduced in the long session. We do that in the short session. I think that would help in the long session, so the bills that are introduced, instead of having 4,000 bills that we ultimately maybe adopt six or 800 of them, we have 1,000 bills or 1,500 bills that are very focused on where we need to really do policy changes and things in the state. So it gives us time as leaders to have more conversations with public input in that. Uh, at the end of the day, I just believe that uh, 
what I've learned, uh, my style of operating that fits well with the city of Springfield. I can tell you what I hear from the citizens of Springfield is why can't the sides get along? And I agree with that. Why can't the sides get along? Again, we don't have to agree on everything that we need to respect. I was in a very difficult conversation with somebody that I don't agree with yesterday, a colleague. We had this conversation, but he, he understood and I understood that we still respected each other. We come from different perspectives. So one of the things, if you talk to people in the legislature, they'll, some of them will complain about my colleagues is I talk too much about Springfield, uh, reminding them that Springfield's not Portland or Springfield's not Corvallis or Springfield's not even Bedford, that we are indeed, we have our own unique differences and things we need and I, I harp on those things. But the other thing I think I believe, I believe to my position is the fact that I grew up in Northeastern Oregon. So we have a very large urban rural divide in this state. And I, I understand, having grown up there, I spend a lot of time up there every year in Northeastern Oregon, family and friends that still live there. And I appreciate, understand. So some of the coalitions I've built is with the legislators from Eastern Oregon in order to try to represent their causes. And here's what I think going forward. We in the state need to look more at regionally. We do too much one model fits all and we need to do more models regional. So how does it work? Because I can tell you what works in my small hometown of Wallowa is very different than even what works in Springfield. But in many cases, the state legislation is one model. It's gonna work the same part as every place. And so I think, I think co collectively, the legislature is making progress to do those things. I just enjoy being a part of it. I think I've been effective at it and I would appreciate uh, having the opportunity to continue to do it. So again, thank you for doing this. Excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, we've had with us this Friday evening, state representative of District 12 Springfield, Oregon, the incumbent John Lively and his challenger Ruth Linos. Thank you both for continuing your engagement in the democratic process. We need those who are willing to risk and allow themselves to be put under a microscope, if you will, and under speculation about their ideas. And we know it takes courage and that opens you up to a lot of criticism. So we do not take lightly or disrespectfully the work that either one of you are doing. Uh, Bonnie Mickelson and Jake Parry, thank you for your participation tonight, your thoughtful questions. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we will hear from both these candidates again through the Springfield Area Chamber of Commerce, as well as Springfield City Club. So they'll get chances to be heard and to be seen uh, before we get our ballots and have a chance to vote. So with that said, everyone have a good evening. Thank you for your participation and stay safe. Thank you, Mark, Bonnie, Thank Jake, you. and Representative Lively.